Lord, thank you for this morning, for the time that we have to gather and look into your word. I pray that you would um, help our minds be sharp this morning to understand what is in your word. Your spirit would illuminate our hearts to understand it and apply it to our lives. pray that we would learn from the example of um, the history of your people from long ago. and We would see your character that has not changed over the years um, and be able to grow and learn from that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, this morning we're going to be studying the books of First and Second Kings. So as we begin, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Curveball. So go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, just to give you kind of the game plan for this morning, my goal is so that we are able to understand the books of First and Second Kings better, that you are equipped to be able to read and study them on your own after this, and we're going to be doing that by looking first at the context for these books, and then a second at the actual content. So we will get to First and Second Kings. We're going to start in Deuteronomy. So if you were in Deuteronomy 4, the background for this book, um, as we talked about I don't know, a month or two ago, is that Deuteronomy is an extended sermon by Moses to the nation of Israel just before they enter into the land of Canaan to begin their conquest. So this is at Mount Sinai, I think it's Mount Sinai, um, where Moses is kind of giving these final instructions to the nation of Israel and reminding them of all of the things that they have heard before, reminding them of the law that they were given. And as they are about to realize uh, part of God's promise to Abraham of this land given to his descendants, he is taking the opportunity to remind them of what is most important as they go into the land. So Deuteronomy 4 verse 1 says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And so he's calling back these promises from Exodus and Mount Sinai, where God had entered into a covenant with them to tell them how they must live in the land. And he says their disobedience to this covenant uh, determines what their experience will be like in the land. If they followed God's law, they would be blessed. And if they disobeyed God's law, they would experience curses. Now, this is different than the unconditional covenant that God made to Abraham, where God promised Abraham land and offspring and blessing and said, this is going to happen regardless of what you do, Abraham, because this covenant is something that I will keep, that God will keep. The Mosaic covenant doesn't usurp the Abrahamic covenant and then put conditions on it. That's still unconditional. But it does specify the means by which people will experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying this is going to happen regardless. But for the descendants of Abraham, for those who obey, they get to experience these unconditional blessings. For those who disobey, those blessings will pass over them and they instead experience these curses. And their blessings will pass on to their descendants. So this is what Moses is calling to mind in the book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> and in Deuteronomy 28, Moses gives an extended list of specific blessings that the nation would experience if they follow God. Uh, in verse 1, he says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, 
and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall, you, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And he goes on and tells about more of these specific blessings of the nation dwelling in the land. But chapter 28 also describes <clears throat> the curses that the people would experience if they disobey. And it sounds very similar to the opposite of these blessings. In verse 15, he says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. So once Israel is established as a nation, their obedience will lead to victory in war, bountiful harvests, and a prosperous economy. But their disobedience would lead to military defeat and famines and destruction. And the final ultimate curse that Deuteronomy gets to, to say if your disobedience as a nation goes so far and is unrepentant, this final curse is exile that they will be removed from the land that God has brought them into. They will lose this blessing of their homeland. And so even before they had conquered any land in Canaan, before they had gone in and received the promise, God is warning them of, that it could be taken away through their disobedience. So he's reminding them this doesn't have to happen if they just obey. And he's giving them a backdrop and an understanding of how important it is for them to follow God. And this <clears throat> Mosaic covenant and the blessings and cursings that come with it are really the backdrop for the conquest into Canaan. They're the backdrop for Joshua. They're the backdrop for the book of Judges, where you see the nation in the land, but experiencing kind of the turmoil of disobeying God. Um, they're experiencing these uh, curses, being conquered by other nations, then turning back to God, experiencing blessing again, and then doing it over and over and over. So Judges is a microcosm of the, the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and it's also the backdrop for the period of the kings, first with Saul and David in First and Second Samuel, and then in all of the um, history that we're going to see today in First and Second Kings. And so all throughout the book, the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant is hanging in the air. It's kind of coloring everything that happens. And this um, warning of exile is also in the air, coloring everything that happens. So for us, that means when we read First and Second Kings, we need to remember the Mosaic Covenant and test each of the actions of the kings according to whether it's following the law or not. And if you read carefully the author will give us hints. He'll kind of tell us whether the king is someone who followed the law or if they did what was evil in the sight of God. They're, they're often measured up to the standard of David. If someone is, is a, a law follower, a God lover, it'll say, and he followed in the footsteps of his father David. But if not, it'll say he followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, which we'll learn about a little bit later today. They're kind of measured up to people who are examples of law followers, or lawbreakers. So it's important to understand the Mosaic Covenant and to be looking for how these kings are described. 
So the Mosaic Covenant is a background for the book of First and Second Kings, but there's also the Davidic Covenant, which is very important because it speaks directly to kings and specifically to the line of David. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, David had become very excited about building a house for God. He realized that there was the Ark of the Covenant, but God did not have a building, a permanent dwelling place to dwell in. And so he took it upon himself to undertake this uh, project of architecture. But God has other plans, and he sends Nathan the prophet to David to say, this is a good desire that you have, but I actually have a different plan. Let me explain it to you. And so in verse 11, we'll pick it up there in 2 Samuel 11 in the middle of the verse, God to David through the prophet Nathan says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes this promise to David that his descendants are going to reign in Israel forever. This is a promise that there's not going to be usurpers to the throne, there's not going to be coups and ousting his descendants, but that they are going to have a continual line of succession. And he doesn't just say for a long time, he actually says forever. So there's a really significant aspect to this covenant. But at the same time where he says your descendants will reign forever, he also says for those descendants who disobey, they're going to be disciplined. There, there are these still curses for disobedience that are going to come. And, and those are kind of intention because how, how can they reign forever and yet also be disciplined when they disobey? There's, kind of, there's an interesting tension there that we're going to pick up throughout the book of Kings. If you think back of how the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, God says, I'm promising to do this. And then the Mosaic covenant is conditional. If you obey, you get to experience these blessings. If you disobey, you don't. The Davidic covenant has a little bit of both, where God says, I will do this for you, but also there are blessings and curses that depend on how the king obeys. And that's the tension that we'll see throughout the book of Kings. So that is the context. Both of these covenants, the Mosaic and the Davidic covenant, are really important to set the, the groundwork for the book of Kings. But now let's look at the content. So you can go ahead and turn to 1 Kings. Now, originally, 1 and 2 Kings, which we're going to look at together uh, this morning, originally they were one book. In the Hebrew Bible, there was just the book of the Kings, because it was a history of the kings from uh, Solomon up through you know, 40 different kings. And when the Hebrew was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, <clears throat> it was split into two books, First and Second Kings. So that's where we have it today. But you can really read them um, without much of a break in between the two books. It's just the history of the kings of Israel. Now, we don't know the author of these books, but it's most likely someone who took the records of the kings, that they would just keep notes and histories of what the kings did, 
someone took these records and compiled them into the form that we have now. Um, now, Kings was likely written during or after Judah's exile to Babylon, which was in 586 B.C., because we see recorded in the book the, those events of the exile. So this is likely someone who had access to these histories, someone who could compile them all together, and it was likely someone in the 6th century B.C., 500-something. Now, at the beginning of the book, chapter 1 and 2 in 1 Kings, we see the description of the end of the reign of David. David is on his deathbed. He's close to death. And the point of these chapters is to see what will happen after David dies. We've seen him take over after Saul in First and Second Samuel. But now what is going to happen at the end of David's reign? And so these chapters focus on the transfer of power from David to Solomon. These events took place around 970 B.C., and so from the beginning in 970 to the end in the exile, it covers about 400 years. And it's interesting as we begin to look at Solomon to see the amount that his reign took. He reigned for about 40 years, so 40 out of 400. And yet Solomon's reign actually gets about a quarter of the book of Kings put together. So the amount of material given to his reign is disproportionate to the amount of years that he reigned. What the author, I think, is saying is that Solomon is a really important king, so we need to pay attention to what is going on here. So at the beginning, as I said, um, the first two chapters are all about Solomon taking control of the kingdom. He is putting down other, other sons of David who are making these false claims to the throne. He is kind of exiling and putting away those people who oppose David and he really grabs a stranglehold on the kingdom. And this is important because the author is trying to highlight Solomon as the first test case for the Davidic covenant. God has made this promise to David. He's saying, your descendants will reign forever, but I will discipline them when they disobey. So we all eyes are on Solomon to see, okay, what is going to happen? How is he going to obey? What will happen in the kingdom? He gets off to a solid start. As I said, he gains very solid control of the kingdom, and we're very familiar with the story of, of God coming to him and offering him wisdom. But in that chapter, it's really interesting, in chapter 3, we kind of get a foreshadowing of his entire reign. So if you look in 1 Kings 3, I'm going to read several verses from this chapter. In verse 1 it says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And then verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. Solomon responds, but in verse 9, he kind of gets to the heart of it, and he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? God responds to his response, and in verse 12, he kind of gives, okay, this is what I'm going to give you. He says, Behold, I give you a wise and a discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. 
And these verses in chapter 3 really describe Solomon's reign in a nutshell. He is going to be the wisest of all kings, the richest of all kings, the, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel. And yet, he couldn't get over idolatry and the love of foreign women and many foreign women. So he experiences many of these blessings in power, in wisdom, in possessions, in, in his reign. But he also disobeys God's commandment regarding marriage and idols. And so the story of Solomon starts well. We read several chapters about his abundant wealth, his success, and then he builds the temple that is foreshadowed in the Davidic covenant that David wanted to build. And this, this really brings Israel to one of their highest spiritual points. They build the temple. God is dwelling among his people, as he's always promised and, and worked towards from the building of the tabernacle when they're wandering in the wilderness. Now he has a permanent dwelling place among the people. This is a big deal. The people are in a, a good spiritual state. They are desiring to follow God and worship God. And, is, and Solomon is leading them to this point. And in chapter 8, there's an extended prayer by Solomon where he is essentially begging God to show mercy to his people, of this holy God dwelling in the midst of a sinful people. And Solomon is praying this prayer of benediction to say, have mercy on us, God, because he knows that they are sinful. So Israel is in a good spiritual state at this point. And, and after the dedication of the temple in chapter 9, after God has filled the temple, dwelled the temple, God appears to Solomon again. This is the second time after he has uh, promised him wisdom in chapter 3. And in chapter 9, God reminds Solomon of the Davidic covenant that he had made with David. And he reminds him that he will receive his, these blessings if he continues to obey God, but that there's still this um, warning of curses. And the curses that he mentions, if Solomon disobeys, are very reminiscent of the Mosaic Covenant. So he's even drawing this back to mind. We see how important these are to the context of First and Second Kings. And so up to this point, Solomon has a great reign. It's very affluent. He's experiencing the blessings of the, of the Mosaic and the Davidic Covenant. But then we get to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is really the story of the downfall of Solomon. And in the first eight verses, we, we get a pretty good description. And it describes how Solomon loved women from Egypt and Moab and Ammon and Edom, Sidon. He loved a Hittite woman. The, these are all political alliances. He's aligning himself with Israel's enemies, the nations that Israel drove out of the land of Canaan. So he's making these political alliances that God has said, you don't need to make because I, if I'm on your side, you have as much political power as you need. So that's one thing that he's going, he's not trusting God. But he's also not monogamous. He's disobeying God's command for marriage, which his father has done, which many people in the, the nation of Israel have done. So he's not trusting God in uh, the politics. He's not trusting God. He's not following God's command about marriage. And it's really just a microcosm of his his desire for pleasure and sex. It says he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's kind of unfathomable to us. But he was so powerful that he just had whatever he wanted. And again, that's a lack of trust in God. And chapter 11 even comments to say that this is in direct disobedience to God's commands. 
and that Solomon's heart was turned away from God because of them. That's not just an inference that we can rightly make. It's actually there in the text for us. And it's interesting from this chapter, we see that the man who built God's temple also built a temple to the false god Molech, who was a god that required child sacrifice. So we really see the downfall of King Solomon. And so as a result, God appears to Solomon a third time in chapter 11. In verse 9 he says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So when, when you read those verses, do you hear the language of the covenants? Where God is saying, look, you disobeyed, you did not follow me consistently, your, your sin was abundant, and as a result, the kingdom is going to be torn from you. That's a big deal. But even as he says this and says, hey, you're going to be held accountable for what you've done wrong, he also says, but I remember David. And I have made this promise that his descendants will reign forever. And because of that, even though you've sinned, I am going to keep one tribe in the family. And I am going to not even do this during your time, Solomon. I'm going to be gracious and, and do it after you. So you hear the language of the conditions of the covenant, but also God's promise that he is going to make this happen. He is going to have a descendant from the line of David on the throne forever. And we're going to continue to hear those themes echoed throughout the book of the Kings. So we see Solomon kind of held up to the test of these covenants, and all of the kings after him are going to be held to that same standard. And sadly, the kings and the rest of the book generally follow a downward trajectory. There are moments that there are peaks, but the valleys are usually much larger, and the trajectory is generally downwards. We start with Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, and at the beginning of his reign after Solomon's death, Rehoboam is asked to lighten the load that Solomon had put on the people. Uh, Solomon was a great builder. He had accomplished much during his reign, but it came at the cost of the people. So they asked him to lighten, they asked Rehoboam to lighten the load. And he listened to Solomon's counselors and they gave him good advice. And then he listened to his friends and they said, no, be worse. He said, yeah, I'm going to go with those guys. As a result, Jeroboam, that's always confused me because the names are so close. I've always had trouble remembering who was who. But Jeroboam, who is not the son of David, um, but is that servant God said he would give the kingdom to, Jeroboam uses this as an opportunity to seize power. And he takes the northern ten tribes of Israel, all but Judah um, and Benjamin in the south, he takes all of these tribes and he sets up a new kingdom. And Rehoboam is left just with the southern kingdom of Judah. So Israel has separated from Judah. And, and this is also important as we read through the Old Testament from kings forward to remember that up to this point, Israel has referred to the entire nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the followers of Moses. At this point, the kingdoms are split into Israel in the north, 
which are these ten tribes in the north that are not under a Davidic king, and Judah in the south, who is now not just referring to a tribe, but to the kingdom that is ruled by um, the descendant of David. So from here on out, through the prophets, through the rest of the kings, if you see Israel, that's the northern kingdom. If you see Judah, that's the southern kingdom. That's an important distinction. So our attention turns to Israel here. How are they going to fare under their first king, Jeroboam? Well, Jeroboam was in a good political position. These people hated Rehoboam, so they were following him. He had a lot of infrastructure. He was set up to succeed. The only thing he didn't have was the religious affections of the kingdom. Because the temple, newly built under Solomon, this grand building, was in Jerusalem, in Judah. So Jeroboam, being the very... Um, intelligent, cunning king that he is, set up uh, places of worship in Israel. He set one up in Bethel in the south and one in Dan in the north. Unfortunately, his method of gaining the religious affection of the people was to build two golden calves, which is incredibly reminiscent of Aaron. He listened to the people, built a golden calf while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And Jeroboam actually says the exact words of Aaron. He says, Behold, O Israel, your gods who led you out of Egypt. And as we read, if we remember that from Exodus, we see that Jeroboam's reign is not going to go well. It's not going to turn out good. Jeroboam ends up as kind of the standard for bad kings in Israel. If, if a king is not going to walk and follow God, usually kind of the subscript at the beginning of their reign is, he walked in the steps of his father, Jeroboam. And he is not a good standard. So we quickly see the uh, political regimes in Israel unfold. Jeroboam's son is murdered by a political opportunist named Bashaw. And then his son was murdered by another usurper, uh, Zimri, who reigned for all of seven days before he was ousted by another. And this would be indicative of the northern kingdom. Over and over again, time and time again, new people, new blood would come in, uh, kill the king, and usually the king's entire family, and take over. And in Israel, um, after Solomon, after the kingdoms are split, there are 20 different kings. Now in Judah, throughout the book of First and Second Kings, there are also 20 kings, But Israel, these 20 kings come from nine different dynasties. Whereas in Judah, there's only one. All the kings of Judah flow from the line of David. Whereas in Israel, you have nine different dynasties. So nine different coups and assassinations and the times of bloodshed where the kingdom's power changes hands. And really, that's indicative of the Davidic covenant where God is is saying, even though there's disobedience, in the line of Judah, I am going to keep my promise to maintain someone from the line of David. Now, one other note as you read through 1 and 2 Kings, because this can be kind of difficult as well. First, if you get Israel and Judah are different and what they are, that's important. The second part is how these books are laid out. Because he doesn't just say, okay, let's talk about Judah and go through the entire history of the kings of Judah and then Israel. He'll start with one king in Israel and go through his entire reign. And then he'll come to, when, he, when that person dies, he'll go to Judah. And he'll come back over here. 
But it's not always a one-to-one -one where this person will reign to the same time, and then you can kind of go down the history. When one person dies, he'll go back to the beginning of that person's reign and whoever was reigning there, and he'll go until he gets to a king that has passed the king in Israel's death. So sometimes you'll have one king in Israel, and then three in Judah, and then one in Israel, and one in Judah, and then four in Israel. So it's confusing unless you pay attention to where the king is reigning. And he'll normally say in the whatever year of this king of Israel, this person started reigning in Judah. So for your timeline, it's important to say, okay, when was this person reigning? Which country is this? And they'll often be referenced in the stories where the king in Israel will play a part in the king of Judah um, in their life. Um, a lot of Bibles have a timeline or some sort of way to fit all these together, and those are really helpful. But if you're just reading the text, it's important to pay attention to the timeline that is provided in the, in the chapters and also to make sure you know uh, which country the king is reigning in. So that's just a tip to uh, help your reading. But for the most part, um, in Israel at least, the, each different reign tells the same story, which is usually that disobedience leads to cursing. And as you read Israel and Judah, you also get the, um, the good kings in Judah that show that obedience leads to blessing. And these are, again, just going back to the different covenants that have informed our text. So that's the general, that's the big idea of First and Second Kings. And if that's all you had, you'd be able to read them on your own. But I wanted to go through some of the kind of more important kings in the reigns of Israel and Judah that really stand out and give us some interesting information. Um, the first of these kings that I wanted to look at is Ahab, who is king of Israel. And Ahab is the son of Omri, who ousted Zimri after seven days. And Ahab receives a very interesting description at the beginning of his reign. And this is in 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 30. It says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, so Jeroboam here held up as the standard as the worst king, Ahab goes beyond him. It says, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab has gone and taken a, a, a wife and has not just had his heart turned away from God, but has essentially replaced God with Baal, with Asherah. Jezebel is kind of the religious leader in the kingdom. And so Ahab has gone beyond saying, hey, you can worship God through these bulls, which is what Jer Jeroboam was saying. He's like, you can worship this actual image and that your worship will go to the one true God. Ahab is saying, no, I'm rejecting that. We got these better gods now this Baal and Asherah. Ahab followed after Solomon only in his love for women with false idols. And he makes this political alliance marrying this woman for just the, the blessings that he could get from this other nation. Again, rejecting God, rejecting following him to try to get what he wanted in his own power. And during this time, during Ahab's reign, as I said, they actually persecuted um, the followers of Israel. 
They weren't just coexisting with idols and worship of the true God. They were trying to, trying to eradicate anyone who worshiped God. And this is where we get the story of Elijah, which a lot of us are probably very familiar with from Sunday school lessons. From They're very exciting stories, and so they're, they're ones that we enjoy telling to children. We know about the, the, the long drought, the multiple-year drought that Elijah brought upon and then was fed by ravens. We know about his battle on Mount Carmel and God speaking to Elijah in a still small voice. But Elijah is really important, not just for these kind of miraculous things that happen, but Elijah shows us the office of a prophet. And what Elijah was doing is not just showing up on the scene and being this crazy miracle man. What he's really doing is taking the law taking God's word and applying it to the nation. That was his main role, was to say, this is what you're doing and this is what God said, and these are not in line with each other. So he's he's essentially a preacher. God used him to do many miraculous acts, those are true, but his main role is that of someone who is pointing out God's word and proclaiming God's word. And this is true of other prophets in scripture as well. And that's another important thing to remember about this history of the king's is that this time period is the context for a lot of the ministries of the prophets, for Isaiah, for Micah, Hosea. A lot of these prophets in Scripture that we have the writings recorded of took place during the reigns of several of these kings. They're contemporaries. And again, they're not just these men who got these crazy prophecies and revelations. Sometimes they have these revelations of the future, but their main role was to to hold Israel's feet to the fire of the word of God and calling them to repentance. And so as you read um, the prophets, you can often gain a lot of information by reading the historical context in the book of Kings. When you read Isaiah, go back and read about the reigns of Uzziah and Hezekiah. When you read Hosea, go back and read about the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. Or when you read Jeremiah, read about the reign of Zedekiah and the exile to Jerusalem. And you won't be able to go through, or we won't be able to go through every prophet and where they fit in with the kings this morning. But as we go through the prophets in Sunday school um, in the, the coming weeks, they will have this historical context in the book of Kings. And so it's important to remember that they don't happen kind of apart from each other, but it's really kind of at the same time. Now, the other really interesting aspect of Ahab's reign is that at the very end of it, he actually comes to repentance, which is kind of unbelievable from what we know about Ahab. But in 1 Kings 21, that's what we find. Elijah condemns him for his idolatry, and Ahab is really cut to the quick. He repents from his sin, and God relents from the coming judgment in accordance with the Davidic covenant. So we see here both the covenants at work God is again honoring his promise. But we also see that no person is beyond repentance. Even wicked kings like Ahab can turn and follow God. So that's Ahab. Um, But now we're going to move to 2 Kings. And here we meet Jehu. In 2 Kings 9, uh, Jehu is raised up by God to bring judgment on the sinful nation of Israel. After a period of really awful rulers and a a really poor state uh, spiritually in Israel, God raises up Jehu to execute judgment. 
And Jehu kills the king of Israel, who is the last king from the line of Ahab. And Jehu also kills the king of Judah. And he kills all of the family of Ahab, who is still alive. And he kills all the prophets of Baal. Jehu, this is one of the bloodiest parts of the Bible. I, as I remember Carrie teaching through Leviticus, Leviticus is very bloody. But I almost wonder if this section might be bloodier. There's an incredible amount of, of killing. And God had raised him up to eradicate sin and to bring punishment on the nation of Israel. But he goes beyond that. And he, he also doesn't hold fast in his love for God, but also goes back to idols and high places. So Jehu's action has big, big ramifications for Israel. This is another one of those uh, bloody coups, and uh, a new dynasty is started. But as I mentioned, he also killed the king of Judah, one of the descendants of David. And this is kind of surprising because when he kills this descendant of David, he doesn't have a son who's old enough to reign. He has an infant son. And so there's this power vacuum in Judah. And guess who seizes on that? It's someone named Athaliah, who is the king of Judah's mother, who is also the daughter of Ahab. And from what we know about Ahab, this does not look good. But it's also someone who is not a descendant of David reigning in Judah. And Athaliah sees this power by killing everyone from the former king's family. So she is doing everything she can to perform a coup herself and to cut off the line of David. And as we read, we should say, well, this is wrong, because God promised that there would always be a descendant of David. And what we see is that God providentially preserves his line. There is a priest who takes the infant son named Joash and hides him away for several years. And then he performs a, a kind of coup of his own, although this son rightfully has the power anyway. They rise up, they uh, remove Athaliah, and they restore the line of David. And this story is really impactful because it shows how far God will go to preserve the line of David. So we have... Ahab, we have Jehu, we have Athaliah and Joash, but we need to turn our attention back to Israel before we finish up here. Um, as we've looked through the kings, we've seen that the nation is steadily heading in the wrong direction. Whichever dynasty comes and reigns again, they're not correcting things for long, but they're continuing to work themselves away from God. And by the time we get to 2 Kings 17 we see that the nation of Assyria has come in and is oppressing Israel. And this chapter records that Assyria doesn't just oppress them, but even takes them into exile, just as God had promised in Deuteronomy. And this chapter is really interesting because it records the event happening. It tells you that this is a real historical event, but then it goes into a lot of commentary on why it happened. And it walks through everything we've seen here, that the nation is sent to exile because of their idolatry, their disobedience, because they did not follow God. And it sounds incredibly like Deuteronomy chapter 28. The only difference is Deuteronomy said, these things will happen to you if you disobey. Whereas 2 Kings 17 says, these things happened to them because they disobeyed. So we see that the nation of Israel is not paying attention to the law of God, but the author is. And as we read through it, 
We need to see all these events happening in light of this Mosaic Covenant. Now, this exile to Israel occurred in 722 B.C., which is less than 300 years from the reign of David. Just a couple hundred years after David, this pinnacle of Israel, and Solomon, this wise king, the northern tribes of Israel are no more. They're gone, and we're left with only Judah. But right as all these events are happening, at the same time, the king in Judah is named Hezekiah. And Assyria comes and oppresses him as well. But instead of responding in fear or responding um, in trusting in other alliances, Hezekiah's response is to trust in God. And he, along with Isaiah, who we said before is a contemporary, um, turn to God, they trust him, they pray to God, and God works a miraculous victory over the nation of Assyria and preserves the nation of Judah. Unfortunately, at the end of his reign, Hezekiah falls victim to trying to play favorites with another nation, Babylon, and he ends up committing sin by uh, bringing them in and showing them things he shouldn't have, kind of making this political alliance with Babylon. And that's foreshadowing with what's going to happen with the nation of Judah, who will eventually be exiled in Babylon. So they avoided one nation taking them over, but ultimately they wouldn't be able to avoid exile. Now, there's one, one last king that I wanted to mention before we get to the end, <clears throat> um, and that is King Josiah. Because during Josiah's reign, he was a, a king who followed God, he removed idols, he did all that he could to bring about spiritual revival in Israel. But there's a really important element that happens during his reign, and that is that he's having the priests clean up the temple. And as they're doing this, as they're going through the different rooms of the temple, they find this book. And what is this book? It's the book of the law, which tells you that they had lost the book of the law. They had lost the Pentateuch. They had lost Moses' words in Deuteronomy. And they bring it to Josiah, and they say, uh, we have a problem. Because even in Judah, this line of David, they, have, they haven't had the word of God. And as they read it, Josiah weeps. He tears his robes. And it even tells us about that they observed the Passover for the first time since the judges. Even through David, through Solomon, through Hezekiah, all of these good kings, you see how far they had fallen away from the law. And there's, there's a lesson in it that we won't get into about how easy it is to lose the word of God if we do not actively pursue it and actively keep it as the authority in our life. But that's, that's a sermon, not a Sunday school. Um, at the end of the book of 2 Kings, we see the end of Judah, and they are exiled into Babylon. Um, even the line of David has gone so far that they are experiencing the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. But the last thing that we see in 2 Kings is the king of Judah, who has been taken into prison um, in Babylon. He is removed from prison and taken to the king's table, which tells us first that his life has been preserved, but second, that even in exile, he's experiencing kind of a form of blessing, where he's not a prisoner, he's not having his eyes gouged out as, as kings before him have, had done when they go into exile. And this last note in Second Kings is a final reminder of the Davidic covenant, where God has said, I will preserve this line. I will not let this line die out. And ultimately, 
from, from this preserved line, we can pick it back up in Matthew and in Luke where we see the genealogies of Jesus coming through David, through Solomon, all the way down through the kings to the birth of Jesus. We see that the final descendant of David is reigning forever. And all throughout the book of Kings, we see God's fingerprints preserving this line. But we also see all of the results of their disobedience. And so as we wrap up the book of Kings, the first and second Kings, um, the question that we've been asking a lot of our Sunday schools is, what would we miss if we didn't have this book in our Bible? What would be missing from Scripture in our knowledge of God? And I think the biggest thing we would miss is God's incredible display of faithfulness over 400 years. That's taking us back to the Protestant Reformation. That over this massive period of time, that for us is kind of too big to, to get our minds around, God has shown his faithfulness to his people. Um, and we'd miss his commitment to Scripture, to the Mosaic Covenant, to the Davidic Covenant. We'd miss his preservation that he's going to accomplish his plan, regardless of what happens in the world. And we would also miss the warning of what happens to people who turn away from God and are not committed to his work. So there's a lot we'd miss about God, a lot we would miss about our world. And so I'm grateful that we have um, the books of First and Second Kings. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up and pray, and then we'll go to the sermon. Lord, thank you for this morning and for the, the books of First and Second Kings. Um, I praise you for all of the, the work that you have done in history um, through Solomon and um, Hezekiah and Josiah and all these, these uh, men that you raised up as kings. Um, and I praise you that you are the same God of faithfulness and commitment to your word now that you were then. I pray that you would give us hearts that follow you, that desire you. Um, that you would expose idols in our lives in ways that we are disobeying and that you would bring us back to a wholehearted um, pursuit of your will. Um, it's in all these things. Uh, in your name I pray, amen.